EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is October 31st, and I talked to Dr. Yasha Mung, a lecturer in political theory at Harvard University, a fellow at New America, and a fellow at German Marshall Fund. Sure, I'm Yasha Munk. Uh, I'm a lecturer in political theory at Harvard University. I'm a fellow at New America and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Great. So what do you think was the future emerging now in, the, in Europe? The most important part of that future has nothing to do with Europe itself. Um, it goes beyond Europe and it's to do with the deep crisis of liberal democracy. Um, that actually in many ways became most obvious in Europe before other places um, that you saw with the rise of people like Jörg Haider in Austria, with people uh, like Herr Wilders in the Netherlands. Um, but now when you look beyond Europe to India, to Israel, to the United States, um, you see a very similar development happening everywhere. Um, and I think that is the big challenge that we're going to be confronting over the next 15-20 years. We thought that we lived in a post-historical age. We thought that democracy in places that were relatively affluent, where there had been a couple of changes of government over the years, was there to stay. This is very personal for me. I went to college in 2000. Um, and the kind of political debates we had there, you know, seemed to us to be important, but they were limited debates, more or less, I went to college in England. More or less, we knew what England was going to look like 20 years from now. I grew up in Germany. We knew more or less what Germany was going to look like 20 years from now. And suddenly, for my generation, it's a very interesting moment of, of waking up and realizing, no, we're going to be living through moments of real historical transformation, of real historical change, and we'll have to defend the very, very, very basic elements of what we think is valuable in our political systems today. Um, and so I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about Europe itself, but I think we have to see what's going on in Europe in, in the context of this wider historical moment. You talked about the crisis of liberal de democracy. Can you expand a little bit on that? And also you... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... The most obvious sign of it is the rise of these terrifying far-right populists. So we're, we're speaking um, a week or so before we mark an election. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very clear that Donald Trump um, has no commitment to democratic values, no respect for the US Constitution, no willingness to subordinate anything uh, to his own personal interest. And in the whole history of the United States, we've never had a candidate like that so close to the White House. And that is only one sign of a wider rise of these kind of populist forces. Um, now, this is something that people are well aware of. The, the way that I try to make sense of this is to say that the economic, ideological, technological preconditions for liberal democracy have slowly eroded 
over the last 25, 30 years. And that what we're seeing is a bifurcation of liberal democracy into two new regime forms. So when you think of liberal democracy as being liberal, protection of individual rights, minority rights, and all of that, and of being democratic, which are defined quite minimally as some uh, set of institutions to actually translate popular views into public policies, I think what we're seeing is the rise of forms of illiberal democracy, or democracy without rights on the one side, and that is the case with candidates like Donald Trump, with candidates like Marine Le Pen, with candidates like Frau Petri in Germany, but also with actual governments today in Poland, in Hungary, in Turkey, in Russia, uh, arguably India. And then on the other side, um, elites are saying, look, um, if the people are voting for these madmen, and if they just want to turn democracy against itself by violating the rights of ethnic and religious minorities and so on, then we better insulate the political process more and more. And so what we're seeing, especially in Europe, the European Union, are strong forms of what I call undemocratic liberalism, rights without democracy, places in which public policy is quite reasonable. In many ways, we're doing the best we can to get economic growth, to respect the rights of individuals. But it comes at the price of insulating people from the political process more and more. The institutions that were once supposed to translate popular views into public policy no longer do that, and, and people realize that. And so then there's a danger of an ever-widening swing of a pendulum, that people get very angry that they've been excluded from the political process in this way, and that makes them more likely to vote for liberal populists. And as the liberal populists start to gain even more in power, political elites say, well, obviously we have to insulate decision-making, whether it's about free trade deals or about uh, you know, policies and religious freedom from the people, because look what we get otherwise. Um, and that's quite a dangerous development. You talked about participation, which is, which is very important. And we, as you mentioned, we're seeing decrease in participation. Um, I mean, you, EU citizens are less willing to participate in elections and have, have a say in, in, a, in, a shape, in how the future is being shaped. So how do you see how this could be changed? How citizens could have more participation and to what extent can they determine the future of Europe? The reasons for the shift are quite fundamental. And so uh, I think there's some things we can do, but it's difficult to affront it completely. Um, why is it that we are now in the world of something like undemocratic liberalism? Well, some of it is self-inflicted roots. Some of it is um, the fact that legislators have become further and further removed, both sociologically, intellectually, financially, economically, from ordinary people. Why is that? Well, they've become much wealthier over time. I think the, the urban centers have become much more uh, defining of political moment. Um, social democracy has declined, and social democracy has always been a very important um, political force to, to take people from working-class backgrounds, from smaller towns, and turn them to national leaders. Um, and so taking all of these things together, I think, has been a problem. But, but, but part of the problem is wider. It's not self-inflicted. It's to do with the kind of political problems we now confront. Um, if you want to deal with climate change, you can't do it at a very local level. It requires huge cooperation between governments, ideally, across the whole world. So how, how can you have real democratic decision-making? 
I mean, I guess you could have some procedure in which the whole world population votes on that, but even if you did, which is completely unrealistic for any number of reasons, any, per any one person's vote would be one in five billion, one in six billion. Why would they care, right? Um, and so I think that there is this very deep dilemma between making the kind of policy we need in a globalized era about things like climate change, also about things like tax, um, redistribution, regulation of standards, all of those things, and preserving some democratic element. And that's very difficult to do. Um, so I do think that there's experiments we can do with, with forms of uh, using technology for, for more direct uh, governance. Um, our institutions were designed by and large in the 18th century, um, or were copied from institutions that evolved over time. In the case of Britain, were, were invented in, in the United States in the 18th century. In France, we obviously were changed since then in the 18th century. And we're basically still living in that world. Um, and we now have the technological capacity for involving people in government in very different ways. And I think there's some interesting ideas about what to do. Um, but I don't think that's going to solve the, the underlying tension, which is that we need huge global agreement on a whole bunch of very important issues. Um, and people will feel that they don't have a voice in those things because um, the scale is too big. I see. So over the summer, everybody was shocked with the Brexit. Now it's, a, it's apparently a reality. How do you think it's now shaping, shaping the future of Europe, the very fact of Brexit, that the, that the people voted and then a, the results were shocking but it's apparently what everybody is considered to be democracy. Now we're dealing with the results and it's going to have a huge impact. What, how do you think it's going to shape, shape, change the way the future of Europe might look like? Yeah, with Brexit I think there's the element of what's, what's the immediate impact of Brexit going to be or the direct impact. And then there's a question of what does it mean that we live in the kind of world in which Brexit was possible. Um, so, so in the first one, I'm actually, you know, reasonably optimistic. Um, you know, I think it's going to be very bad for Britain. I think that it is going to turn Britain inwards. It might um, uh, increase the centrifugal forces in Britain. Um, uh, it makes it much more likely that Scotland will become independent. It makes it much more likely that we're again going to have real civil strife in Ireland. Um, it's going to give more weight um, to the Little Englander um, impulses um, in the United Kingdom. Um, and all of that is, is very sad for the future of the United Kingdom. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily a problem for the rest of the EU and, and if Britain ends up doing quite badly out of Brexit, it might in fact strengthen the EU a little bit because certain forms of Eurosceptics uh, will, will, will be disheartened by the negative example. Um, but, but, but that's a sort of smaller consideration. I think the larger consideration is that um, this shows the degree to which in the country that three or four years ago I would have considered probably the most stable political system um, and in many ways the most admirable, the most rational political system that we have anywhere, how quickly that can become hijacked um, by a form of populism that proudly says, we don't want to listen to experts, we don't care about the elites, 
um, we are turning a complicated abstract question about the European Union with all of its failings um, into a very simple vote about identity politics, about whether or not we want to be part of Europe, whether or not we want any foreigners here, whether or not we want you know, even more immigrants. Um, and then you have very large economic um, and political consequences from that. Now that's possible in Britain uh, in this referendum and it's possible in France and Germany and the United States and everywhere else too. So I do think that the larger lesson of Brexit is simply that there's no guarantee that Trump won't be elected a week from today. There's no guarantee that some successor to Trump who might be just as bad or in some ways even worse because more disciplined will not win the presidency in four or eight years. Um, there's no guarantee that Marine Le Pen will not be president of France a few years from now. And there's no guarantee that once these people are in power, they are unable to really transform the political system in quite a deep way. Um, and we haven't talked yet about places like Poland and Hungary, which I think are at the forefront of the rise of a liberal democracy. Um, and I, I've been trying to talk to scholars of the region um, and to practitioners there to understand whether those regime forms are stable. Um, I think there's roughly three stories you might have about where those countries go. The first is that this is an aberration, that voters will realize um, they've made a mistake, that civil society is strong enough to fight back, and it'll be a nightmare that has some real, real consequences, but three, seven, ten years from now, we'll get back to a world of normal liberal democracy. The second idea is that you basically now have these populists in the system all the time, um, but, and perhaps they can make the political playing field a little bit uneven. It becomes possible for, um, it's, it's difficult for the opposition to win against the government, but it's possible, you know, they, they have reasonably free and fair elections, if not entirely so. And the least optimistic possibility is that Poland and Hungary are not so different from Russia and Turkey. That this is a stepping stone towards um, a form of not a liberal democracy, but a liberal dictatorship, um, with some pro forma elections, but in which the opposition is so disadvantaged, both in terms of media and in terms of disqualifying candidates and in terms of intimidating opposition activists, that there's just no way of getting rid of these governments anymore. And I don't think we have a historical precedent to know. Um, basically, nobody I've spoken to has convinced me very strongly which of these worlds we're in. I don't think we're in the most optimistic world. These populists are there to stay. But whether or not um, the populations of Poland and Hungary will actually have a chance to vote these people out, um, I think is an open question. Um, and, and I think Brexit shows and developments in Western Europe and North America show that 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 question would be an open question if somebody like Trump were elected president of the United States as well. But it would be an open question if somebody like Marine Le Pen were elected president of France as well. Um, so we're now fighting for the survival of global democracy. You, you talked about Eastern Europe and we see what's going on in Poland with this uh, abortion ban debate and then Hungary, the recent referendum, the very fact that they can put this question on referendum. So why do you think there is this huge, let's say, this kind of movement in, in these countries? And also, what's the role of EU in, I mean, what's, what role does the EU have in letting all this happen at all? 
Yeah, I'm unfortunately uh, quite pessimistic about the ability of the EU to intervene. Um, the EU can intervene strongly on a symbolic level. And in the case of Poland, it's done that over the last year. But it's, it's become quite clear that that's in many ways a help to the populace. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, I think if the EU is not a club of values, it, it, it has nothing left. So, so, so certainly we should protest when a member country like Poland goes in a clearly liberal direction. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's going to make much of a change on the ground. Um, then there's a question about economics. That, oh, look, we're contributing so much money to them. Um, once the governments actually do things that will make the EU turn off the spigot, people will turn on the government. But again, it's not clear to me if that's the case. Putin and Russia has done things that are disastrous for the Russian economy over the last two or three years. Um, um, but because it stoked the feeling that the West is treating Russia unfairly, because he's used it in a nationalist narrative very aptly, um, it hasn't undermined his position of power so far as we can tell. Um, and so I don't think that the EU is going to be able to come to the rescue of Poland or Hungary in the way people say. And so then it becomes a larger question of, well, what is the cause of all of this? And not just in Poland and Hungary, across the liberal democracies. How, why is it that at this point, in the early 2010s, mid-2010s, we are seeing such a concerted threat to liberal democracy? And I essentially think, and, and it's a difficult question to answer, because for, for, for a couple of reasons. The first being that each country wants to tell its own local story, and that seems very persuasive and tempting in each country. Um, but, but, but it can't be the case, you know, that, that we're seeing this in 25 different countries and there's 25 different stories. And some of the stories are mutually contradictory. So in the US, the story often is, well, the problem is hyperpartisanship. In Germany, a lot of people are saying, well, the alternative for Germany is now starting to rise because Merkel is such a centrist. Right? So these can't be the explanations. Um, so what can? Well, uh, and the other problem is that... Uh, there's economic uh, explanations that seem to work very well in some countries, but not in others. So in the United States, um, there's always been a very rapid increase in the standard of living of the average citizen from one generation to the next throughout the history of democratic stability. From 1945 to 1960, the standard of living of the average citizen doubles. From 1960 to 1985, it doubles again. Well, we're no longer in that world. Since 1985 until today, it's remained essentially stagnant. And so perhaps that's the explanation. That seems plausible, right? But then you look at Poland and Hungary, countries that have had a very rapid rise in the living standards over the last 25 years, and that becomes more complicated. So what's going on? Well, I think that there's three underlying long-term developments. Um, and you have to see them together. Um, they reinforce each other rather than being rival to each other. And each of them are stronger uh, in some countries than in others, but they're present to some degree in everyone. So the first is economic, but it's not a straightforward story about the living standards. It's about economic anxiety. The average Trump voter um, is actually wealthier than the average American, even than the average white American. But they have much higher levels of economic anxiety, and they often live in areas but have actually experienced some real economic decline. So they may be doing okay, but they see that the neighbor is not. They see that in one neighborhood over, house prices are starting to plummet, crime is really up. The factory in the town is left. So they have real economic anxiety 
about what the future will look like. Um, the second explanation, I think, is about identity and race. Again, the simple story is to say, well, um, it's just about how many immigrants there are or something like that. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I think the most important factor here is the change um, in the number of immigrants. Um, so uh, there's many areas where there's not very many immigrants, and people say, oh, so it can't have to do with immigration, because look at Eastern Germany, say. Um, look at Poland. These places don't have a lot of immigration. But I think it makes a huge difference when your population goes from 0 to 3% of immigrants. In some ways, that's more important than if it goes from 10 to 20%. Right? It's a bigger transformation of a world around you, especially because what the part of immigration is about is a refusal in most countries to see these people as true members of a nation. People in Germany saying, if you're Turkish, you can't be a real German. People in France saying, if you come from Morocco, your ancestors come from Morocco, you can't be a real Frenchman. Um, we're doing a unique historical experiment trying to turn these deeply mono-ethnic, monocultural nations into ones that define themselves in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious way. In the United States and Canada, the story is a little different um, because I think there, it being countries of immigration, the idea, say, that African-Americans are American is a little bit more accepted. But there's still a problem, and the problem has to do with accepting that whites are no longer culturally and politically dominant in the way they were. So there's not a rebellion against accepting African-Americans as Americans. It's a rebellion against accepting that the equal Americans who might become president or Supreme Court judge. The third thing that's going on is a rebellion of the rural, ex-urban, traditionalist, often more religious, uh, conservative regions against the political center. Um, that's visible again everywhere. It's visible in the United States, it's visible in, in, in France and Germany and Italy. I think it's strongest in places like Poland and Hungary and Turkey and India. And there, these, these groups of the population have become empowered for two important developments. One is actually that in many places we now have the educational and political resources to be active in politics. That when you look at somebody like Erdogan um, in Turkey, he comes from a region of a country that, that was too poor and too disempowered to actually take part in politics in an important way. And so he's the voice for a rising but resentful, because not rising as quickly as the metropolitan centers, uh, part of a population um, that feels like they've always been excluded, which is true in certain ways, and now they're going to take the country back for themselves, finally. Uh, and that's similar in Poland, it's similar in India and, um, and other places. And the other element there, I think, is, is social media. Um, that, that media were always controlled by a relatively small number of people who decide what is reasonable and what is not, what is true and what is blatantly untrue. Um, and that limited the degree to which uh, these parts of the population could create alternate realities. Um, but now social media has flattened those kind of hierarchies and has actually, in this important way, undermined the, the advantage and the power uh, that the metropolitan centers had over more rural, regional um, areas. What kind of future would you like to see in Europe? ideal, I mean, your, your vision. Hmm. Um, 
I'm at a point where I'm less utopian than I've ever been. Um, you know, personally, my, my parents grew up in Poland. I was born in Germany. I went to college in England. I've lived in Italy and France. I've now been in the States for a long time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of Europe, right? I'm all in favor of the EU as well, um, not necessarily in its current form. Um, but, you know, sign me up for the European super state. Why not? Um, I think we're, we're at a historical moment when we're realizing um, how far the experiences and the values of uh, the kind of cosmopolitan elite that, weird as it is to say that, we sort of inhabit, how far that is from the bulk of the population, um, and how much we risk when we try to impose our preferences and values and visions on the population. So I'm, uh, at the moment, I don't think it's the time to, to aim for, for big visions. I don't think it's the time to um, make bold steps forward that will somehow solve everything. I think it's the time to defend uh, what we have and what's valuable in our current order, um, which doesn't mean immobilism. I mean, it needs to mean real economic reform to make sure that the living standards of average people rise again. It needs to mean a real both economic and larger social cultural change that makes people in the regions valued. It needs to entail a very complicated renegotiation of how we can protect and further the rights of marginalized minorities, um, help them to overcome the disadvantages they still suffer, but also make sure that we don't turn our politics um, into the kind of identity politics which will ultimately drive us apart um, and embolden the, the majority, which, which still has more political resources. Um, so I think, I think we need to make real, do real changes. I, I don't mean that we should be immobilist, um, but I think we should be focused on thinking very seriously about the roots of this crisis and of finding bold but pragmatic ways of diffusing the anger that stems from those roots um, and defending liberal democracy because we're at a moment when things that we've taken for granted for a long time uh, could really fall apart. Um, and the impulse of, especially European elites in the context of the EU, of, of, of sort of thinking that we just have to hold course and, and go forward and not be too worried about that because this will be a temporary blip and we can you know, overcome it by, by not compromising on our values. Um, I fear that that's uh, liable to end up being part of a problem. Is there anything I didn't ask you about but you want to talk? So many things, but um, <laughs> I think... the future of Europe, EU, future of globalization, why not? If you want to have a, something, you have something to add. I think I've said enough. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing in global context into the future. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast 
a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.